Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Tech stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I'm an editor. And sitting in front of me, as usual, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Gee, I'm really sorry your mom blew up, Ricky. <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't expecting that one. Yeah, that was that one has nothing that to do with what we're talking about. Awesome. Yeah, it's a great movie, isn't it? Yes. If it you is. have not seen that movie, then you need to find out what that quote is from, and then go see that movie. Raisins. <laughs> um. <laughs> he likes corn. <laughs> Um, we could just quote that movie for the rest of this podcast, but that's, that would be fine. It except would, it wouldn't cover the the topic that the title says. True, and it is one of our favorite gaming companies that we're talking about the history of today. Sega. Yes, yes. Chris was the one who came up with the brilliant title, the Sega Saga. Yes, it's an epic Sega saga. So let's and 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 it has nothing to do with Iceland, right? It's a completely different saga. No, no. There, there's no Beowulf in the... Well, they might have made a Beowulf game. I didn't go through their entire 
arcade library. Anyway. And then it was disgruntled. Anyway. Nice. Oh, man. We're, you can tell we've already done one podcast this morning because we're really a little, warmed up now. Loopy. Um, so the, the funny thing is, uh, the, uh, Sega still exists. Right. So we are, we are not burying a company as we did with Midway. Right. So much. But it exists in a radically different form than it did many years ago. And, uh, many people, and I had no idea when I started the research for this. But many people think of Sega as another one of those Japanese arcade game companies or like game Nintendo. companies like Nintendo or Taito or or Sony, Sony, and some of the others. Not so much. No, it act- well, it is, but it began as an American company. Yes, in, in Honolulu, Hawaii. Which I guess technically, in 1940, Honolulu still was not in an American. It was an American territory. That's true. It wasn't a state. But I think you'd probably still call it an American company. And uh, its name comes from Standard Games. Actually, it comes from the second name. Standard Games was their original name. Yes. But oh, they yes. then changed service to Service Games. games. Yeah. Because uh, they, took the, they took the SE from Service and the GA from Games and became Sega. Now, why was it called uh, Service Games? Because... Early on in its history, the company made coin-operated amusements. Yes. Right? So these are the kind of uh, old-style penny arcade-type games. Mm-hmm. And uh, they made them uh, specifically, they would they were making them for a very niche market. Niche. Military bases. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's where you got the name Service Games. Aha. Uh-huh. Because they were in the service. Exactly. And they... Uh, the. The company had been around for a few years when um, they kind of got this idea of relocating to Japan. Yes. The company originally, as Standard Games, was founded by uh, Martin Bromley, Irving Bromberg, and James Humpert. And they started it in 1940. Right. Um, I, you know, oddly enough, right before the United States entered World War II. Right. Um, with Japan, of course. Um, and in 1950. 1950- After an event that happened in Hawaii. <laughs> yes. Um but in 1951, uh, Bromley was the one that said, let's move to Tokyo. And that actually, uh, you might say, why did you bring that up right after the war thing? It actually had a lot to do with the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just because they were originally creating games for uh, service locations, but also because the you know Japan had been uh, damaged pretty heavily in the last days of the war, pretty heavily, very heavily. And um, the con- the country was rebuilding, and they saw an opportunity to get in on the ground floor of and and create an industry that that really didn't exist in Japan like it did in the United States. In the United States, they had competition from other game manufacturers, where in Japan, they would have a much more open market. Yeah, this was really amazing foresight, right? Because yeah, you have to remember at this time in history. No one was really looking to Japan to become a leader in electronics no. or or any any of those kind of industries. I mean, Japan was a a country that had been devastated by war. Yes. And um and the United States of course invested quite heavily in in rebuilding Japan as did other nations. Yes. And Japan for its part didn't just accept money and, you know, and coast the Japanese people, the Japanese government really dedicated themselves to building a new Japan. Mm-hmm. And and boy, did they. The electronics industry alone became so important to Japan, and they became so innovative 
that it Japan, you could argue, became the leader in several electronics uh, sub categories mm-hmm. to the point where uh, you had countries like America say, "Wow, what happened? We were we were way in the lead there. What? How did that happen?" And the reason it happened was companies like Sega really saw the opportunity and seized it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So uh, in 1965, Sega merged with another company, Rosen Enterprises. Right. Um, again, founded by an American. Uh, David Rosen in 1954. And they, that company had been working on instant photo booths and mechanical arcade games. Yeah. Um, I think of that being sort of like pinball machines and those things with the cranes that never seem to work. The claw. Yes, yeah. the claw. Or the games where you get the coins that are right there on the edge and all it's going to take is one more coin and it'll knock all those coins in. You'll be rich, but somehow, despite the laws uh-huh. of gravity and, and, the conservation of energy, it just doesn't work, which shows you that science is a lie. Okay, that last part was I, a joke. I'm going to send in the uh, stuff to blow your mind <laughs> that, staff, and they can they can have a talk with you about that. Explain how this is scientifically possible. I dare you. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't long after that that Sega released its first uh, major hit, at least that I saw referenced, and that's called Periscope. It's a sub- submarine simulator. Again, with the war theme. Yeah. Um, and uh, in 1969, I'm giving you the concise history here, and, which is the one that's on the Sega website. In 69, um, Sega, uh, Rosen and, and the other people who were shareholders in Sega decided to sell out to Gulf and Western, uh, which, according to Britannica, was founded in 1958 uh, and just became a – it was a huge conglomerate company. Um, it owned Paramount Pictures. Um, and then it changed its name, Gulf and Western. I remember seeing that on the Paramount logo and wondering what the connection was. Well, it changed its name to Paramount Communications uh, in 1989, and then Viacom gobbled it up in 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, but that—that's uh, you know sort sort of how it became a a worldwide entity because first it had the hit with with Periscope, and then uh, it was you know uh, became part of a very large uh, media distribution company. Right. And uh, I thought it was interesting that just this is just kind of an aside. I don't really have a whole lot of detail about this, but then in the seventies, uh, Sega really kind of tried to branch out beyond just um, doing the amusements and the games. Yes, mm-hmm. and uh, created its own Sega branded television, really? large screen TV. Yeah, in you know the seventies, I, I didn't see that. Yeah, it's uh, one of those just odd things. Obviously, it was not not the it what ended up not being the direction the company moved in but mm-hmm. it was something that they were you know they were trying out different things and uh as the arcade game began to evolve you know in the late 70s that's when we started seeing arcade games appear as it began to evolve Sega got involved in that because you know that was sort of Sega's thing was they were they were all about coin operated amusements and then after the coin operated uh uh Games started to really take off. That's when you started to see companies develop the home game consoles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, I uh, I have to say that as I was doing research for this, I started, of course, with Sega, but uh, ended up on a really awesome, uh, lengthy history of Sega uh, at IGN done by Travis Foss, F-A-H-S. And uh, he really gets into a lot of depth about the company. Mm-hmm. Um, according to his article... Uh, it was Space Invaders' release in 1978 by Taito, mm-hmm. um, causing a coin shortage in Japan. 
Wow. Uh, that uh, helped spur the industry, the video game industry in in Japan. And um, Sega at that point uh, picked up an American company called Gremlin Industries to come up with uh, ideas for arcade games. Did they feed them after midnight? It's always midnight somewhere, as That's you true. pointed out. That's true. Well, not always, but at the top of the hour. Yeah. Um, and uh, head-on was the result of that. Applied directly to forehead? <laughs> it was a maze game. Um, amazing. No. Uh, not not completely dissimilar to uh, another famous maze game not created by Sega. Pac-Man? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I remember some of the, the games that uh, uh, Mr. Foss mentions in his article, including Zaxxon, which was a 3D oh, yeah. space shooter. That was a great game. I loved Zaxxon. Fantastic game. Um, and he also mentioned Buck Rogers' Planet of Zoom, which I can't remember if it was in the corner pizza place where I used to spend all my parents' quarters. Yeah. Um, For me, it was Skate Country. But... Uh, was the name of the skating rink at my hometown. Oh, uh, this was a uh, that's a pizza. There's some free plugs for businesses that no longer exist. Uh, yeah. But uh, as Jonathan mentioned, uh, they started getting into home games with some. They started out with a, a very, very, very ugly console named the SG-1000. Yeah. Now this was marketed only in Japan. Yes. It did not get worldwide distribution, and it's probably a good thing. It came out around 1983. Mm-hmm. And it was a cart- is... cartridge-based system, right? Yep, that was that was during the uh, game crash that we talked about in an earlier podcast. Yeah, uh, was... which is interesting because it came out. I would say that was the second wave of home, big wave of home consoles. Yeah, really. Sega Sega had some amazing timing with its console releases. Uh, the first being that releasing a console shortly after the massive home gaming crash that happened. If you remember from our podcast about that that uh, that crash. What happened was that the market became glutted mm-hmm. with various consoles and games, many of which were of uh, a poor quality. And so uh, the home market enthusiasts became disenchanted with video games in general. And a lot of people were making the move toward looking at personal computers, which really had not hit big time by 1983 yet, but were starting to gain a lot of traction. So home consoles were, were hurting at this time. Now... And uh, the the this console that uh, Sega released, the SG one thousand, it had some problems. Uh, <laughs> it only had uh, RF connection, so yeah. if you were to buy one today, you would actually have to probably find an adapter. Yeah. In order to play it, I have one. An RF adapter. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Somewhere in a box. Or you have an SG one thousand. No, I don't okay. have an SG one thousand. Um, uh, you know, they they were pretty affordable. They only cost fifteen thousand yen, which you know was about. $130, according to... Uh, I haven't. I didn't do the pricing for today. I can look it up on... on no, that's on. all right. I didn't do um, that. I, I, got, I got messages last time about, uh, about yes. how irritating See? it was for me to do the full conversion. But it did launch on July 15th, 1983, at the same day as, do you know? Was it the Fancom? Yes, the Famicom. Yeah. <laughs> which was uh, known to those of us in the United States as Nintendo the Nintendo Entertainment, Entertainment System. System. The NES. So, yes, right out of the gate, Sega released this on the same day as a, a an icon in the video game industry. Now, of course, the Nintendo Entertainment System would make its way to the United States a little later. Yes, but, but the, the SG-1000 SG-1000 never does did. not. And let me tell a, a little bit more. 16 colors. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a little more detail about this this console. 
Uh, it also had a hardwired, permanently attached joystick. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a joystick that you would unplug and pack up. Uh, it, the reason for that was that it made it less expensive to produce. Right. But apparently... The joystick had problems. It was it had poor response time. You had to really press on it to get things done. And it was rectangular, kind of like uh, the shape of a remote control, with the joystick toward the top end in the center and buttons on either side. Mm-hmm. Not the most comfortable thing in the world to hold. I actually read an article in uh, Wired where one of the Wired writers found one while attending a game conference in Japan and purchased it for about $58 to bring it back and try it out, because hardly anyone bought this thing. The Nintendo beat the pants off of it in Japan, and of course, never saw worldwide distribution. Yes. So uh, his review was that you could see why it never saw worldwide distribution. The games, he said, were pretty much not that great, and the controls were really difficult, and the Nintendo was just a a, a superior system. Yep, yep. And in fact, it it scared away... Uh, the corporate parent. Now, lest you have paused the podcast and corrected me on Viacom owning Sega, um, in 1982, Gulf and Western, before Paramount even entered the picture, before they changed their name, they said, okay, no, uh, Mr. Rosen, you want your company back? Yeah. Um, and uh, they were asking $38 million for Sega, which, you know, I would have considered a bargain in today's terms probably. But, right. Um, so basically, uh, David Rosen found some other, uh, willing partners and, uh, uh, including a, a company named CSK Holdings, um, a, a Japanese company. Um, and, uh, basically they bought it back from Gulf and Western headquartered in Japan and, uh, uh, Rosen stayed in Los Angeles, California to, uh, manage the United States operation. Um, so yeah, the SG one thousand not a hit, and Gulf and Western says no, no, no. You go ahead, you yeah. you can have it back. And a couple of years later, Sega launches a new console, the Sega Master System. Oh, so we're skipping the SG one thousand two. Yeah, I'm skipping all the twos. Most of the uh, several of the consoles we'll be talking about had follow up uh, consoles. And that the were, Sega Mark three. Yeah. Let's let's it's, just talk about the ones that are important. It, it's funny if you if you go back to the uh, if you go back to the uh, um, list of if, if you go find this article and look, find these boxes. Yeah, they are the most depressing looking beige chunks of plastic. Kind that, of re- kind of reflects their uh, their their eventual fate. Yes, however, but not their eventual successes, which right. looked far cooler. So, so the Master System. The Sega Master System, yeah. The, it came out in Japan around 1985, and mm-hmm. then it got worldwide release the next year. And that was another 8-bit-based video game console system. So this is the same same general processing level as the Nintendo Entertainment System. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a 32-color system as opposed to the 16 <laughs> from the previous uh, uh, console. And again, cartridge-based, but it also had a slot for... Uh, a card system. Uh, the cards would actually hold games that were not as complicated, that didn't need the full capacity that a cartridge could hold. Well, you could like walk around with a whole pocket full of games and yeah. and, and trade them with your friends, right? These, these would be the yeah. It's like Pog. No, they, these these were the <laughs> um. You could play Pog with the cards if you really wanted to. Now the, the the cards were for the games that were much less complicated. So you might have 
uh, you know, your your A title games, they, those would all be on cartridges because they needed that space. But then you would have these very simple games that were not uh, that uh, uh, demanding as far as um, storage space goes. And so those would be used uh, on the cards. The card thing did not last very long. Uh, the later versions of no. the Sega Master System just did away with it because hardly anyone was purchasing these card games. And then they would just, they would release like batches of these card games all contained to one cartridge instead. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like if you've ever played a, a a more modern console where they release the classic games where you'll get like maybe 30 or 40 classic games on one disc, it was kind of the equivalent to that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that one was around $200 when it launched. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh, at this point... Uh, I believe uh, a man named uh, Hayao Nakayama was in charge of Sega in in Japan, and Rosen was uh, handling things here in the United States. They didn't always so much see eye to eye, get along. Yeah, um, and that that's important because that story is going on behind the scenes here. Right, we don't really see that. Those of us who are are Sega fans, um, we don't really see all that stuff because you know this is not the kind of thing where. You know, you would typically know about that. Uh, what you're looking at is, you know, whether or not uh, uh, Space Harrier and Outrun and Zaxxon are coming to your house. Um, right. But the thing is that the uh, the decisions made by Sega in Japan and, and Sega in America had a great deal to do with the successes and failures of the company, as we're going to see coming up shortly. Yeah. Um, because at this point, this is when uh, Nintendo was launching Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, uh, so around that time, the the Sega Master System was seeing some success in Europe. Mm-hmm. They were they were actually selling fairly well in Europe, but in the United States and Japan, they were trailing sales of the NES. Yeah, and uh, I mean, the, really, the the Sega's strong suit at this point was their intellectual property for their arcade games, like you were saying. Right. And, and They had that leverage. And Nintendo had Mario. Right. Nintendo had an identifiable mascot. Yes. Right? And and Sega needed something like that. Yeah, because, I mean, you could say that Atari had Pac-Man. True, yeah. Atari had licensed Pac-Man from Namco. Right. Uh, for use for in For better home. or for worse. <laughs> that that was another podcast. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's uh, um, they they were really looking for some character that they could use, they could leverage, and I know who you're thinking of, but it wasn't him yet. No, no, it was Alex Kidd that they they settled on. Yeah, if you and haven't heard of him, that shows that it was not a huge success. Right. Um, no, they tr- they tried to make him into a franchisable character that they could parlay at home, but he just didn't... Alex Kidd in Miracle World just didn't take off like they hoped it would. Well, who would have thought that Jumpman would eventually become an iconic character? You mean a shortish plumber in overalls with yeah, a bushy mustache? I mean, Mario started off as Jumpman. No one would have thought this guy is going to become the icon uh, yeah. for a company. Yeah, yeah. And he did. Showed us. So, at this time, we're getting into the late 80s, Sega starts to plan its next big console. Yes. How do you follow up a console named the Master System? Especially one that didn't do so well in the United States and Japan. Well, you could call Hmm. it the Mega Drive if you wanted to. 
but why would you do that? Well, it did do that for some countries, but yes. in the United States, it was called Genesis. Yes. <laughs> Kirk. Not that Genesis. What? It you was mean this, this thing didn't like make dead planets turn alive. No. Uh, this, I'm glad I never bought one then. The uh, the master system was was had changed from that really boring beige color to black, right. but it still looked like a box with ports on it. Yes. The Genesis was black and shiny and sought by Khan. Round, roundish. It had curves and it was a lot cooler looking uh-huh. than its previous. Not that that sells. However, Altered Beast being packaged with the system, yes, that helps. Yeah, now keep in mind the Sega Genesis was still a cartridge-based system. We haven't moved away from cartridges yet. No. Uh, but it, it was superior to the NES. It was a 16-bit system. Yes, and, it was. And the NES was an 8-bit system. And when it came out in 1988 in Japan, that was uh, before the Super Nintendo. Yes. Not a whole lot longer before the Super Nintendo, but, but long enough so that Sega had a jump on the 16-bit market. Yes. Now, the uh, the um, IGN article points out that it didn't take off right out of the gate no. in Japan. Pa- maybe partially due to, and I didn't know this either, that Super Mario Brothers 3 had been released the week before. Great timing, Sega. Yeah. So everybody was still kind of invested in Well, yeah, Nintendo had game. amazing market penetration, too. Oh, yeah. So you get yeah. to a point. It's just like, uh, you know, the to, to jump over to another company for a second. PlayStation had such a great depth of games that the the original PlayStation was going strong well after the PlayStation 2 came out. And then when the PlayStation 3 came out, the PlayStation 2 did the same thing. In fact, they were still making PlayStation 2 games long after the PS3 came out. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a level of loyalty among gamers. Also, I mean, let's face it, it costs a lot of money to upgrade from one system to another. Mm-hmm. So if you are a gamer and you have a console and there's still get new games coming out for that console... There's not a whole lot of reason for you to jump ship to another system unless the games are just phenomenally better. Yeah. Now, you could argue that the Genesis games were at least phenomenally better from a graphical standpoint or or even sound effects standpoint. The, yes. The specs on the Genesis were superior to the NES. But again, the market penetration that Nintendo had, particularly in Japan, was hard to um, to to just dismiss. Yeah, the Genesis only sold 400,000 units in its first year, mm-hmm. which is not, I mean, especially by today's standards where gaming is far more um, in, entrenched in the market than it used to be. That's that's nothing. Right. But in the United States, they got a guy named Michael Katz to take over. Um, and um, basically, they, they named him president of Sega of America one month after the Genesis launched. And uh, the company was really trying to push selling a million systems mm-hmm. which again t- in today's standard seems like tiny tiny um but nintendo had the licensees locked up as right. well um to use uh to use Foz's reference and uh yeah i mean they had uh contracts with them that were binding that said you know, if you develop for other systems, you can't develop no. for us anymore. No, nope. and because Nintendo had such a huge customer base, everyone wanted to develop for Nintendo. Now, for some of you, this might sound familiar, mm-hmm. because we're seeing similar things uh, in today's market. Not necessarily with the video game consoles, but let's talk about developing apps. 
mm-hmm. for various platforms. Yep. This might sound very familiar to you. Yes. So that's uh, not an old idea. Or, or rather, it is an old idea. It's not a new idea. So this was around the time where Sega finally did come up with a mascot that actually stuck. Yes. It was in uh, 1991. Okay. That we saw a certain blue rodent that can move really, really fast. Actually, I don't even know if they're rodents. But <laughs> um, I think they are, but but I, I can look. No, um, it's okay. No, it's they, not important. Uh, um, Foss actually pointed out that this was the point at which Sega got into the sports genre uh-huh. pretty heavily. Um, they got people like Tommy Lasorda, Evander Holyfield, Joe Montana, and a non uh, – you'll – probably wince when I mentioned this, a non-sports person, but was big on the Genesis, Michael Jackson. I would just like to point out that none of those are the blue rodent I had mentioned no, earlier. No, e- exactly. But no, I just... Well, sort of, kind of. The but... reason the reason I remember this is because all my friends who had Genesis's... Genesis. The Genesis liked the sports games. They right. were big on the oh, sports sure, games. Oh, sure, sure. Um, so yeah, they, they really had gotten that. And they helped out a then-struggling company named... You probably never heard of this company, Electronic Arts. No, uh, no. Who helped e- them? What were the E something? Yes. Well, they had the Madden franchise. That was when the Madden franchise was just starting. Yeah. But they developed the Joe Ma- uh, Joe Montana football game for uh-huh. Sega as well. And then on top of it, you're right. That that blue hedgehog, Sonic, finally showed up, and he was. Uh, this really went into their marketing thing because. Sonic was a sassy little guy. Yeah. Uh, sort of like Mickey Mouse when he made his debut on the scene. Yeah, before he got kind of watered down a little bit. Yeah. So S- Sonic was, uh, you know, right there. He was, uh, he, he had was an attitude. He was in your face. Yeah. He was the poochie of video game <laughs> systems. Um, but his, the gameplay really started to sell these consoles because people were looking at how fast Sonic the Hedgehog played and the, the graphic quality the fact that you could have these fast-moving, clean graphics with vibrant colors, that really began to catch the attention of the public, and the Genesis started to actually make better sales. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, right around the same time that the Genesis was starting to to uh, to pick up some steam, uh, the Nintendo company came out with the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So once again, just as Genesis is catching a lucky break, Nintendo comes out and fires a massive cannon across the bow. Well, it probably didn't help that at the time, uh, the graphics capabilities of the Genesis led them to market their their marketing slogan, Genesis does what Nintendo don't. Right. Oh, um, and we should also point out that Sega had a bright idea to make the Genesis backwards compatible. Yes. Uh, now, this was something that becomes very important in consoles later down the line, and some companies, mainly Nintendo, didn't really take it to heart for a really long time. The idea that you would be able to play your old games on your new system. Now, with, in the case of the Genesis, in order to do it, you had to uh, have an adapter mm-hmm. because the cartridges for the Sega Genesis were a different size than the cartridges for the, Se- uh, for the, uh, the Sega Master System. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But you could get an adapter for your Sega Genesis, and then you could play all your old Sega Master games on your Genesis. Now, granted, that's not going to mean that they're going to look better or play better than they did on the older system, no. but it means you'll have access to them. Yep, yep. And um, uh, they recruited a guy named Tom Kalinske from Mattel, who had overseen uh, or worked with the uh, the Intellivision. Yeah. Um, your favorite game system. 
And uh, that's not my. F- I had one, but it's not my favorite. They they pushed him into the uh, CEO of Sega uh, of America slot, and he made a lot of important decisions. He decided that Sonic should be in the box and not Altered Beast. Yeah. So Genesis started shipping with uh, with that, and uh, Sega in Japan didn't like the idea. They thought it was a bad idea to include Sonic in the box, and Kalinsky, not for the last time, proved that he knew what was going to work and what wasn't, and lo and behold, it's it sold a lot of units. Yep. So, welcome to the next level. Yeah, Sega. Let's talk about let's talk about some of the other stuff that Sega did. Uh, they also began to introduce expansions for mm-hmm. the Genesis. So not just the adapter that would allow you to play old games, but some expansions that unfortunately did not see a lot of success. Mm-hmm. One was the Mega CD, <laughs> which was allowing you to play. Because here's the thing: compact discs could hold a lot more information than a cartridge. Yes, they can. So the idea was: how about for these games that are going to be really uh, Pushing the envelope mm-hmm. as far as what the console can do, the console is capable of doing more than what a cartridge-based game can provide. So therefore, yes. we need to create uh, a system that will allow a new media to be used, new form of media. Mm-hmm. And in that case, it was the compact disc. So the Mega CD was produced, and a few games came out, including uh, Sonic CD, and uh, they did all right, but they never really took off. No one really adapted to it. And then there was the 32X. Yes. Which was another uh, expansion for the Genesis. Originally, it was going to be an update to the whole Genesis console, but there, uh, an argument was made that it should be instead an expansion pack rather than a brand new console. Right. And the idea here was that it was going to give you a jump on getting to the 32-bit-based game systems. Keep in mind, the Genesis is a 16-bit system. Yes, and then uh, Sega was already looking forward to the next system. The which next generation, yeah. It was planning on calling the Saturn. This was the big problem with the 32X, right? Yes. Because they, they come out with the expansion pack of the 32X, but they also say that they're working on the next generation console. Well, if you're a developer, a game developer, you might think, well, why should I develop for an, a game system that's going to be obsolete in just two years? Mm-hmm. Why should I develop a game for that? Instead, I should be developing for the next generation of video game consoles. So not a lot of content was produced that could take advantage of the 32X, so that's why that was a failed adaptation. But the Saturn uh, came out a little bit later uh, in 1994, mm-hmm. and in 95 it, it hit the U.S., and it started to have a lot of the things that you saw as expansion packs for the Genesis. Yeah, it's a, an, an, an interesting story that uh, apparently Sega had met with uh, Silicon Graphics um, back in the day and had a, 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 meet, a meeting with uh, Jim Clark, who was the chairman of Silicon Graphics. And they were trying to sell Sega this new chipset mm-hmm. that would allow them to run uh, new high-powered games and uh, basically, Sega in Japan was committed to going with the chipset that they had already picked out for it. So even though this uh, system was going to be really, really cool, they had to say no. And they said, well, there's another company up in Seattle that might be interested in that. And so they took it to that company, and it became the chipset for the Nintendo 64. Yeah. Painful. Yeah, so the Saturn had three 32-bit processors. But it came out, and it had a CD-ROM drive. Yeah. It had uh, uh, two video processors. I mean, this was a machine that had some decent firepower for the time, right? 
But here's another problem. It came out very close to the same time that another major player in video game consoles came out, which was the debut of the Sony PlayStation. Yes, this is another missed opportunity on Sega's part because Sega had talked to Sony. Right. Um, and Sony had talked to Nintendo, um, both of them, about mm-hmm. the possibility of doing some kind of partnership. And Sony basically, and, and Sega couldn't work out their differences. So the thing is, uh, you know, Sony went out on their own and, you know, Developed delivered delivered a yeah. severe beating to both of them. Right. Yeah, so you've got you've got the Sony PlayStation, which was another CD-based system. You also had the Nintendo 64. This At this point, Nintendo was still holding on to the cartridge-based systems. Mm-hmm. Um, although some of my favorite video games of all time were made for the Nintendo 64. Yes. GoldenEye, anyone? <laughs> or WrestleMania 2000? Yeah. Or WWF No Mercy. Oh man, I love the wrestling games. Um, if you guys are fans of wrestling games, let me know because I'm always on the lookout for really good wrestling games. So that honestly, if you know of good ones, let me know. <laughs> I love them. Anyway, back to the back to the matter at hand. So you've got the the Saturn coming out. It, it is not. It does not do well against the PlayStation. It doesn't not even do all. well against the Nintendo sixty four. No. It is. It's in third place. Sadly, that that system I think is is pretty widely considered a dog. Which is it's. It had some interesting features. And it I actually like had dogs. had a slot. Yes, it had a slot for additional memory. Mm-hmm. So some of the games on the Saturn were so advanced that the system didn't have enough RAM to run the game. Well, okay, you know, Sega developed, uh, um, we, we skipped over it, and I can just throw it in there real quick since yep. we're running low on time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sega developed active 3D glasses years before this. Yes. yes. And they didn't take off. And the consoles supported 3D playback. Yep. That, so, yeah, again, really, just, they, they were really ahead of their time in a lot of these, these uh, developments. Um, so here's another problem. Again, they did not learn the lesson that they should have learned with the release of the 32X, where they said, oh, by the way, we're also working on a 32-bit system. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just two years after the Saturn debuted, they talked about how they were working on the next generation of consoles. So again, you had all these developers say, well, why should I develop for a console that has a two-year shelf life left, maybe? Mm -hmm. and you might be thinking, wow, this is really fast, because, of course, now, right now we're with Xbox 360, PS3, and the Nintendo Wii, none of which have been – we haven't heard any announcements of any kind of successor to any of those three consoles, and they've been out for much longer than four years. Yep. So yeah, – Kalinske got fed up and, and bolted in 1996. Yeah. Said he wasn't going to do it anymore, and they, they brought in a guy named Bernie Stoller, um, and he was really apparently uh, – a uh, you know, go get him kind of guy. He's mm-hmm. just, you know, let's not even talk about it. Let's just go do it. You know, really, really active person. Um, but he uh, he was really pushing for the, uh, you know, the success of the new system, which uh, went down in game console history. Um, I would I would argue that it's probably Sega's best loved system, even more so than the Genesis. Yeah, it didn't sell that well necessarily. Yeah, but um, it's got a reputation. I own one, and I still love this system. Originally uh, called the Katana, it came out as the Sega Dreamcast. Mm-hmm. The Dreamcast was a... Uh, I love this video game system. The controls were really responsive. The graphics were amazing. The sound was phenomenal. It had a great video game library. It hit the market in 1999. Uh, it had 128-bit graphics. It was It was... 
way ahead of its competitors Mm -hmm. as far, again, I mean, that was the story of Sega the whole time, right? Whenever the consoles came out, they tended to be ahead of whatever their competitors were offering on the market at the time. Mm -hmm. Had 16 megabytes of memory, which to us today sounds really tiny, but at the time was really significant. And uh, it was, uh, it actually had a built-in modem. It was the first video game console to have a built-in modem. 56 kilobits per second modem, but it was the first one to have one. So it was actually designed to allow you to have online mm-hmm. capability and play on, uh, online games mm-hmm. They and, had and have a web browser as well. Awesome. Yeah. I didn't realize they had a mm-hmm. web browser. Yep. Well, it was uh, it, what wasn't native. It wasn't hardwired into oh, okay. it. You had to have the disk. Oh, okay. Uh, well, they did have developers. Uh, you know, they had uh, Capcom, Midway, Namco. The you know the the usual arcade suspects. They didn't have Electronic Arts, who uh, I think got very frustrated with having to do that. They uh, uh, having to deal with Sony's up and down. I'm Sony's Sega's up and downs. Yeah, um, mostly downs. Mostly downs. Um, so they actually went out and purchased another company to develop sports games. Um, and from what I understand, Virtual Concepts, which was the name of the company, uh, did pretty well with sports Man, games. Virtual Tennis was amazing. <laughs> that was one of the games I owned, and yeah. it is still owned. I still have this console. Uh, it was also kind of neat because you could one one of the ways you could hook up the console to your system was through coax cable. Cable. Mm-hmm. So you would actually use you know coax cable into the the uh, Dreamcast and coax cable out from the Dreamcast to your television. So it wasn't using like the yeah, uh, the the composite cables that a lot of other systems were using, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it also meant that I could hook up more video game systems to my television because mm-hmm. it was one less uh, port that would be taken up by the the machine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now I understand too that this was a, a very um, a very productive time in the company's history for coming up with new franchises. Um, I believe Soul Calibur. This is about oh, the time that Soul, Soul Calibur came Calibur, out. Soul Calibur, another great game. <laughs> oh, I've got that one too. Uh, Crazy Taxi, great yeah, game. Exactly, and and the thing is though that you know even after the nine nine ninety nine debut and the you know the big launch and and the great games, um, it just it just didn't it just didn't go. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure why. Maybe it's the marketing strategy of the company. They the Sony Sega. See, I keep doing that. Game companies that start with S for two hundred. Sega of Japan and Sega of America did not necessarily agree on marketing strategy right. or how to bundle things or the kinds of chips should and be in the machines. They had to compete against PlayStation coming out with the PS2 and yeah. uh, Microsoft making the debut with the Xbox. And Microsoft had approached Sega as well with the idea of including Windows CE on the Dreamcast. And yeah. they said no. But why were they so interested in the game market? Yeah. Well, as so, it yeah, turns they, out, they, they really Sega kind of shot itself in the foot on that one. The uh, and, and let me let me close off. Let me talk a little bit about something else that you could tell where other companies took some inspiration from Sega. If you look at the old uh, Dreamcast controller, mm-hmm. there's it it bears a resemblance to the modern Xbox controllers. Mm-hmm. It had the triggers. Um, it had a pretty wide uh, uh, controller uh, form factor. Um, there was an analog joystick on there. Uh, it also had a slot for memory cards. In fact, the memory cards had little uh, screens on them. Mm-hmm. And you could actually have mini games that would uh, pop up on the screen on your card that would be part of the bigger video game you're playing on the screen. 
and it, each game would have its own little individual spe- special graphics that would pop up on your memory card. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I loved that. It was just such a neat thing. It was added value for your games. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it uh, it uh, it ultimately this system also did not last the test of time. And in two thousand one, January two thousand one. Sega made the decision to get out of the console market entirely and just concentrate on game development. Yep, stopped stopped actually producing Dreamcast in March of that year, and um, you know they they've done pretty well releasing some games uh, since then. Sure, uh, Super Monkey Ball, anyone? Um, great game. Yeah, it's a great game, um, and it's you know it's made its way to mobile gaming devices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we didn't even talk about Sega's mobile gaming devices at all but um you know that it's available for mobile phones and other uh other things and uh platforms i should say and yeah i mean they're known now as as a software developer they're they remerged all their uh developing strategies into one unit so it's it's a much leaner company than it was before Um, a lot of the sonic games you know even uh sega's biggest star I've heard mixed reviews on the Sega, uh, the Sonic games that have come out in the last few years. Yeah. So it's just um, it's sort of it sort of reminds us of Sega's glory days without giving us the great uh, speed and action that we've all come to know and love. Yeah. So if you guys have any Sega stories you want to share, or perhaps there's another game company you would like us to cover. You know, we've talked about Atari. We've we, talked about Sega. We have a couple others on the list already, of yeah. course. But. Yeah, we plan. We'll probably talk, have We'll have to do an episode about Sony. We'll have to do an episode. We have to do one on Nintendo. We might have to do one on the Dreamcast itself, because we kind of got that short. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's This podcast over. has gone really long, but... Um, th- the Dreamcast was a pretty phenomenal system. Yeah, if you really ever was. do have a chance to maybe pick one up at a used game store and you know it's going to work, go ahead and give it a try. It's a, I was really impressed with it. The, the graphics, of course, don't hold up to PS3 or, or uh, Xbox 360 quality, mm-hmm. but they're, they're pretty impressive, even when you consider what their big competitors were. Mm-hmm. So anyway, you can let us know on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is techstuffhsw, or you can shoot us an email. Email. That address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, and Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, With SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.